Well, church, whenever we come into this room and I change your seats, <laughs> crazy things happen. So this morning you'll notice on my right there are uh, the front two rows are open because this morning we are going to be celebrating communion together as a church family. But in the children's ministry wing, they are teaching on communion. And what better way for them to understand communion than to come in here as part of their teaching and observe the family taking communion and even perhaps watch you take communion. That's part of their understanding and their growth. So they are going to be coming in a little bit later in our service sitting up front, so I'm sorry those who had to move back, who had to move back, who had to move back, but that is what's going to be happening in just a few minutes. Well, if you have your Bible with you this morning, and I hope you do, let's go ahead and start turning the book of James. James chapter 1. We are in our second week in our series entitled, A Practical Guide for an Impractical Life. Last week, last week was incredibly impractical. Because James said, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, when you face trials of many kinds. Why? Because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Nobody just said amen. That's why it's so impractical. Because consider it pure joy. I mean, that is a lot. What we learn from James last week was really, really tough, seemingly some really impractical stuff, because when you're in the middle of your hardship, and when you're in the middle of a trial, when the storms are raging in your life, joy is one of the last things that we tend to think about. But to be clear, James didn't say, act joyous, in your trial. He didn't say like, hey, fake it till you make it in your trial. That's not what he said at all. He didn't even say you're supposed to feel joy on the inside through the rain and through the wind and the difficulties of your storm. No, he said you need a perspective change. James says, Christians, we have to see our trials and we have to see our difficulties differently because what we're going through will do amazing things in us. And that he will use that to do amazing things through us. It's helping us look more like Jesus so that our faith can stand the test of time. What you're going through will help you develop a faith that will take you for the long haul because the bad news or the good news or however you want to view it is the trials and storms of life are not going to get easier. So if your faith is not developing, is not maturing over time, you will not have a faith for the long haul. And then he said, we have to trust in Christ and not our money. We have to trust in Christ and not our stuff. We have to trust in Christ and not our fame or our power or whatever it is that you think makes someone rich or poor. Because what we have in Christ can never be taken from us. That other stuff comes and goes, but what we have in Christ can't. It's funny, this week coming up, uh, I'm teaching in our student ministries department, and I'm going to give them a book that talks about the 33 things that happens in your life at the moment of salvation that can never be taken away from you. 
most believers have no idea that there are 33 things that happens at the moment of salvation that can never be taken from you. Church, that's rich. That's being rich. And so he says, we have to have a perspective change, but he says also, we have to change now that our perspective has changed. We have to change how we respond. Because when we respond, in the world's eyes, he says, the way I'm going to tell you, it's going to look really impractical to the world. Because we have to jump, like a child, from the edge of the pool into the Father's arms. And if we will, he says, the result of that will be more than you can even imagine in this life and in the next. But what he starts to talk about is a danger. A danger that, that most Christians are going to face in the midst of trials. That if we're not careful, we can allow our trials and our difficulties to skew our view of God. That maybe God's not good. That, that maybe God is allowing or maybe God is even encouraging evil to take place in our lives. And so we wrestle with that. And it's a danger because James recognizes that this can literally cut the legs out from what God is trying to do in you and trying to do through you. All through these difficulties, all through these trials. And so he shows us a danger. And what I love about James is he shows us how to respond. So take a look at James chapter 1, verse 3. This is what it says. It says, When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. And if you were with us last week, hopefully you just noticed a language shift. Verses 1 through 12, he, as he's talking about our trials, he's really talking about the testing of our faith. But now, all of a sudden, the language shifts from testing to tempting. Did you see that? You know what's really interesting? The Greek word for trials and the Greek word for tempting, exact same word. It's the exact same word. Because in the Greek language, there are tendencies to both. You have a tendency to lean this way, or you have a tendency to lean this way. That's why the word is the same here. So one tendency is to view the trial, the storm, the difficulty in your life as a good thing, and that God is producing something in you. But the other tendency, which maybe is far more common, is the tendency in the midst of our trial or our difficulty is to be tempted towards wrong thinking or wrong response that leads us into sin. One of those tendencies always wins. In fact, many Christians have uh, 1 Corinthians 10 memorized. It's what Paul says. It says, No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. Tell me we haven't said this to people. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can hear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. You want to know what your footnote says about the word tempted? Exact same word as trial. So your Bible says, No trial has seized you except what is common to man. But when you are tried, God is faithful. He'll provide a way out so you can stand up under it. See, we want to see this verse as an either or. Either I'm being tempted or I'm being tested. 
And we want to see this passage in James the same way, but that's not what it means. See, a trial in the midst of it, if you're in the middle of a storm, it can go either way, can it? You can go, this can go really well or this can go really wrong. And there's a danger in the midst of that trial for it to, what is designed to produce us to trust in him, if we're not really careful, we can view that trial as a source of temptation for evil and then put the blame on God. That's why James ends verse 13 with, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. So James says, no, don't assume in the midst of your trial, don't assume in the midst of your difficulty that this is God's fault, that somehow he's using this trial as wickedness in your life. Why? Because God is good and he is good all the time. He is good and he is good all the time. And not only can he not be tempted by evil, God also cannot use evil to tempt you. He doesn't work that way. It would violate his character. And if you think about it, we see this at the very beginning of the Bible. I wonder how many people have actually sat in Genesis chapter 2 for very long. Because God places a test before man in Genesis chapter 2. It says, the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground. Trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then when you drop down to verse 16, in the same story it says, And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. So what's the test here? It's a test of contentment. That's what's happening here. It's a test of contentment. Because, hey, Adam... You can eat from anything you want. You can eat from anywhere you want. Pick a tree, close your eyes, and point in any direction, and you can eat from that tree. But where now, catch this, where was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil located? Right in the middle. That means Adam had to walk by every single tree and say, you are not enough. And you are not enough. And you, and you, and you, and he's pointing at all these things that God is, and you are not enough. He could have been content with what he had. It was what he didn't have that consumed him. And what happens with Adam is he becomes compromised, enticed by, by that desire, enticed by that flesh that's trying to, trying to enter into him, that the lust of his eyes, the boastful pride of life. And Adam goes on and sin ensues. And judgment follows. But what's interesting to our context in James is, What's Adam's response immediately after judgment came? Do you remember what it was? This is the one where all the guys should forget this verse, and all the ladies are going to remember this verse. Because Genesis chapter 3 says, The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Hey God, I am in this mess right now. Because of that woman right over there. 
It's her fault. She's the one that did it. She ate it. I was just sitting here minding my own business. She went and picked that thing. She's the one. It's her fault. But then in the text, even though it's a short verse, you can almost see the wheel spinning inside of Adam because he's a little slower than most of the ladies here because this is what he says here. He says, he, he, he looks and says, oh, wait a minute. Actually, it wasn't the woman. It was the woman you gave me. It's not her fault. It's your fault. Because, it, it, God, it's your fault. The reason I'm in this whole mess is because of you. Because if you had not put that woman here, and if you had not put that tree right there, none of this would ever have happened. So, God, it is all your fault. And on too many days, we do the exact same thing. We live in the garden. My son is a pastor in Michigan. He works in a recovery ministry in his church. And it's a group of people that are recovering from alcohol and drug addiction. And growing up, Justin and I spent a whole lot of days walking the streets of inner city Detroit together in one of the most broken areas in the entire country. And we're talking to people about their past. And we're talking to people about their presence. And, and really, we're even talking to them about their hope for the future. And each time we meet someone on the street, we ask them their story. On this particular day, this man was going through a tough time at work, and all of a sudden at work, his salary gets cut. In a matter of moments, that man no longer has the income that is required for the life that he has. And so in a desperate moment, when God puts a trial in his lap to produce trust in him, the guy actually seeks his own desire in the midst of that trial and figures out that he's got to find a way to shortcut this thing. And so he begins to slowly siphon money from the company to offset his needs. And of course, the company finds out, and he is instantly fired. And so now he's out of work, and, and he's out of a job, and he doesn't have any money coming in, and so now he seeks to go to the next level, to go back into a career field, if this is a career field, that he came out of, which is to sell drugs. And so he does it, and before long, he's busted by the cops. He's arraigned, he's put in jail. And when he comes out of jail is when my son and I meet him on the streets. And when I ask him how he's doing, he says, Kevin, I am pretty angry with God right now. And I said, why are you angry with God? And actually he says, because this whole thing is his fault. And I'm like, really? This is all God's fault? And he says, well, you see, God, he allowed that pay cut to happen. And he knew I was weak. And he knew once that happened, what would come of it? I'm in this whole mess because of God. And back to the garden we go. And for you and me, it's not all that different. We like to say it is, but it's not. In some form or fashion, we too have the danger of going back to the garden in every storm that blows through our life. Whenever we're in the midst of difficulty or a trial, we run to the garden when we compromise. And in our compromise, the wheels fall off and the downward spiral begins. And as we spiral, we shake 
our fist at God. It's all your fault. And so what James does in James, in James verse 14 is to correct our erroneous thinking. And I want to be clear that storms and trials and difficulties come into our life for all sorts of different reasons. Because sometimes they hit our lives because they are self-induced. Like, we can do some really dumb things, can't we? Okay, me and about three of us here. The rest of you apparently do not. The three of us can do some really dumb things sometimes. And that is a self-induced storm. That is not what James is talking about right here. These are the storms that hit you. You're like, what just happened? Where did that come from? How did, how did any of that start in my life? Because these are suffering and persecuted Christian. The sin that James is dealing with here, it, as, as we read about this, is not the trial itself or even why the trial is there. It's in the response to whatever the trial may be. That's where sin lingers and we can sort of downward spiral from there. And so James says in verse 14, let me explain why downward spirals happen in the midst of a trial. Verse 14 says, but each person is tempted when they are dragged away, not by me, but by their own evil desire, and they are enticed. And then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Again, we're right back in the garden. God did not put that tree in the garden in order to get Adam to fall. What God did is he put that tree in the middle of the garden to win Adam's trust. That Adam would believe in a very deep way that God is and always will be who he said he is and will forever be. And that God's promise would be proved to be faithful and that Adam would trust him with all of his heart, mind, soul, and strength. That's why it's there. But Adam was enticed, it says, not by the tree, but by his own desire. I thought, what's the desire? You know what the desire is? To circumvent God's plan. That's the desire. He was trying to get around God's plan. I mean, we don't do that, but apparently he does. And so what James says in verse 16 is, don't be deceived. Don't be deceived, dear brothers and sisters. Guys, don't be like your forefathers, he's saying to them, who in the midst of a trial, instead of, of clinging to God, they circumvented, they tried to circumvent God, and they ran away from God. Isn't that what happens in so many times we're in the middle of storms? Why is it that we run away from God? instead of running to God. And so in so doing, as the repercussions came in their life, pointing the finger at God like God is some evil tempter in their life, that God has this malicious plot to do this because he wants to invoke harm in his children. And he's like, no, 
James says in verse 17, no, you need some good old-fashioned theology 101 again about who God is and the very nature of God so that when you are in the midst of your trials, so that when you are in the midst of your difficulties, you must remember clearly who our Heavenly Father is and what He's capable of and what He is not capable of. Verse 17 says, every good and perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights who does not change like the shifting sands. If you thought verse 2 was terrible, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters. This is your next terrible verse because this is the impractical part. Every good and perfect gift is from above. In the context of James chapter 1, what is the good gift? your trials and difficulties. Yay, right? The good gift, the perfect gift that is from above is your trials and difficulties. Isn't that interesting? James calls them a a good gift because in our economy, we're like, no way. That's a terrible gift. That's so impractical. That's a crazy gift. Because Kevin, this is so painful. You have no idea how, how expensive and how, how horrific and, and how hard this trial and storm is. This isn't good. This is not good. But in God's divine wisdom, it is good for what he's working out in you, for what he's working out through you. Even though it's painful, God does what God is, and God is good. He can only give what is good, even if sometimes it's wrapped in very harsh packages. And why does James use the phrase, the father of heavenly lights? That's a strange phrase there. It's kind of odd. stood out to me, and what he's talking about are the stars that God created, and he sort of attaches those to God, and he attaches them uh, to our trials. He says there's some things in common, and one of the ways is they don't move. Stars are fixed. In old school maritime navigation, we'd use stars as navigational points, where you'd look up at Orion, or you'd look up at the North Star, and you would know whether you're going north, south, east, and west. Also, because the stars are fixed, you could even know what season it is because they're fixed. And James says what is true of the stars is indicative of the very one that's created them, that God's character is fixed. He is fully good all the time, which is weird because we read the Old Testament and go, that's angry, mad God, and the New Testament is fluffy, fun God. And I go, no. It is the same God. He is good on every single page. You might not like it, or you might not understand it, but it doesn't mean that's who he is. His character is fixed. There is no variation. God has been, God is, and God forever will always be good. There is no evil that dwells within him. There is no evil that can tempt him, nor can he tempt others towards evil, because he is good. That's who he is. And here's the other truth I think we don't like. When we run towards evil in the midst of our trials, because that's what we do, right? No one saunters towards evil. No one really crawls towards evil. Most of the time, we run like with arms out. 
most of the time. That's our own sin that's kicked in. The trial itself, though painful, comes from a good God. But here's the truth that changes everything. No matter what's happened to you in your life, no matter the tragedy or horrific events that come your way, there is absolutely one thing that you can 100% of the time hang your hat on, and that is the fact that God is good, and he is good all the time, and the trials in your life are always good all the time. I don't know that I love that, but that's what it is. He is always good, even in the midst of it, when we can't grasp it. And it's unbelievably painful. So no, God didn't bring this trial into your life to lead you into sin or to wreck your life. God brought this trial into your life to wean you off yourself, to wean you off your intellect, to wean you off your money and other people so that you will place your faith in him, so that you will trust him. It's here to push you to jump, just like the child on the side of the pool. And speaking of good gifts, verse 18 is really exhibit A. It says, he chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. So he's using delivery room language. He's using birthing language where James compares God to a loving mother who gives birth to life, who brings forth new life in his creation. When we hear that, we like to go back to creation, and that's not what he's talking about. This is salvation language, that he has called me, he's brought me forth in faith. He is the prime mover behind my salvation, and he has shaped me and led my heart in response to the truth of the gospel, and he's brought me new life in Christ, and that literally I am born again, and that salvation has been given to me through Christ. He says the same God that gave me life at Calvary is the same God that sustains my life in my storm. The same God that shows up at Calvary is the same God that shows up in your difficulties. My first response isn't supposed to be blaming God or faulting God or frustration with God, but to remember the love and the provision and the pain and the dedication and the cost at Calvary is still for me today. That through his life and his death and his resurrection, he carries me through whatever storm I'm in today. That's the trust he wants in us. But here's where we quote a verse that doesn't always mean exactly what we think it means. While the way we use it is true in the context of the entire scope of scriptures, I think we forget the context with which it's given. Look at verse 19 says, my dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Why? Because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. I read that first service, and I could see some couples just sort of <laughs> elbowing their neighbor. I could see they were waiting for this verse here. See, when your response to God 
is anger in the midst of trials, shaking your fist at him, James says, all that does is cut the legs out of what he's using to produce righteousness in your life. That's why anger is so dangerous. He says, so instead, set your anger aside, suspend it for a moment, and be quick to listen, be quick to pay attention to what and how God is trying to instruct you instead of lashing out. Because people use this verse to say, see, not supposed to be angry. Not supposed to be angry. But the question is, why are we not supposed to be angry? Ever ask that question? Because people can tell me that all the time. I want to know the why. The why is when you're angry, you're in the middle of a trial every time. When you're angry, it could be a short storm or a big storm. It doesn't matter. When you're angry... That storm is there to produce something in you. Your anger is stopping the trial from perfecting your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Your anger is impeding your righteousness. It's, you know what anger really does? It extends the length of your trial. I so hate God's word sometimes, but that's what it does. That's what it does. Most of the time... When difficult things come our way, people tell us we have the right to be angry. But apparently, in the midst of trials and difficulties, anger actually impedes. Anger actually interferes and blocks what God is trying to do in you and through you. How impractical is that? How crazy is that? That that's what anger is doing to you. If I'm Satan, I'm going to get you as angry as I possibly can because it extends your trials. It extends your, your, your pain. You shake your fist at God and you don't grow in righteousness. Man, he's a devious one. I mean, that's what I do and I'm not that smart. During this summer... Before Bruce Goodrich's freshman year, he was 17, he was being initiated into the cadet corps at Texas A&M University. One night, Bruce was forced to run until he dropped, but he never got up. Bruce Goodrich died before he ever entered college officially. A short time after that tragedy, Bruce's father wrote this letter to the administration and to the faculty and to the student body and to the Corps of Cadets. He writes, I would like to take this opportunity to express the appreciation of my family for the great outpouring of concern and sympathy from Texas A&M University and the college community over the loss of my son Bruce. We were deeply touched by the tribute paid to him in the battalion. We were particularly pleased to note that his Christian witness did not go unnoticed during his brief time on campus. Bruce's father went on. I hope it will be some comfort to know that we harbor no ill will in the matter. We know our God makes no mistakes. Bruce had an appointment with his Lord and is now secure in his celestial home. When the question is asked, why did this happen? Perhaps one answer will be, so that many will consider, well, they will spend eternity. Trials. 
difficulties and storms that roll through your life are very, very real. They are oh so painful and they can be filled with grief that feels like it consumes you. And they can be relatively short-lived storms or, or they can be storms that feel like or actually seem to be on paper like they will never, ever end. But church, as a follower of Jesus Christ, how you live in them matters. How you walk in them matters. How have you done not blaming God for your storm? How have you done leaning into him, trusting him in the middle of your storm? Do you live every day knowing like God and living like God is good and he is good all the time? Is your anger stopping God's maturation process in you? Are you shooting yourself in the foot with your anger in the midst of your storm? And this morning as we come to this table, as we take communion together as a church family, may you remember all that he has done in your life. May you remember all that he is doing in your life. And may you sit with hope and joy in all that he will do. May you reflect and may you pray. And if I'm honest, may you wrestle with our Savior. Knowing that while we do mess up, that forgiveness is available this very day. That mercy can rain down this very day. That grace is available to you in abundance this very day. May you know that gentleness and hope is a prayer away. For our God is good. And he is good all the time. How impractical is that?